Hi there. You're about to enjoy a recording made in Wellspring Church in central Watford. We're glad you've connected with us online. And of course, you can follow us on social media, even download the Wellspring app. But much better than this is meeting in person. We would love to welcome you to one of our services in a congregation near you. As you listen to this recording, know that we are praying for you to be encouraged, inspired, and given wisdom from heaven to live life to the full as Jesus intended and bring transformation to your world with his amazing love. God bless you. We are inhaling a narrative that sets women against women. When um, I was in Burkina Faso just recently and um, I was keeping up to date with the news and it was during the time when the utterly tragic death of Caroline Flack um, happened. And if you don't know, she was a TV presenter and everything was too much. Everything was too much for her. And in a completely tragic way, she died. One of her friends, um, who's another presenter, was a lady called Laura Whitmore. She's a um, radio and TV presenter. She said this. She was describing, you know, spheres that Caroline was in and then describing the world. She said, the world is not loving and caring. It's not safe and protected. And anyone who has ever compared one woman against another, whether it's on Twitter or any other platform, knocked someone because of their appearance, invaded someone else's privacy. She was obviously talking about the media specifically in that. Or who have made mean, unnecessary comments, whether it's online or behind someone's back. I added that behind. They need to look at themselves. So right in the heart of this tragedy, a friend of someone who was now grieving, she was able to recognize that the comparison between women perpetuated Caroline's death. This is a serious narrative that we're swimming in, that the Lord is saying, let's change this narrative. Let's bring something different. We have this culture of comparison. We have a diet of comparison, if you like. And the thing about dieting on comparison is it will fuel discontent. It will fuel inadequacy. It will fuel jealousy. It will fuel a sense of negativity, whether it's in our sort of in what we articulate or what we think or how we feel. It's not healthy what we swim in. Now, perhaps we should not be surprised. So obviously the fairy tales, they say once upon a time, you know, there's a good woman and there's a bad woman. But we have a different narrative that sets us up in the beginning that tells us how everything started. And if you know your Genesis account, I'm just going to remind you now of a few things that you know and join a few dots for you. In the Genesis account, you know the whole story. I'm sure you know it. And if you don't, Steph will explain it all to you later. Um, just ask her, um, where did they put those fig leaves? Um, no, so when, when you have the Genesis narrative, in the consequences of the curse, the Lord spoke to the enemy because of his role in what went on. And he said this, and it's in Genesis 3.15, if you want to take notes or just look it up later. He said this to the serpent, amongst other things, because you've done this, you're cursed, blah, 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 blah. And I will, he didn't say blah, blah, blah. That's just me. Um, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, we know that all of her offspring were not all girls. But here we have set up as the spiritual narrative, this public animosity that was going to come to women. Now, if Adam and Eve represent all of people, what we have here is an animosity being set up, in particular, from the enemy to women. 
Now, we can look at our own challenges, but if you look on a global scale, the atrocities against women are exponentially high. It is women who are, by the majority um, versus men, women who are sexually trafficked. It is women who don't get an education in certain countries. It is women who are penalized or restricted, not allowed to get to places of employment, not allowed to drive a car. You know, it's, it's women. There are atrocities against women on a global scale. And it comes back to the narrative of the consequences of the curse. Who wants to live in the consequences of the curse? We don't have to. We don't have to because of the beautiful and complete work of Jesus. We don't have to stay in the narrative of the curse. We can live in the narrative of his resurrected glory, of the presence of his spirit. Now, um, that goes on, that whole, you know, thing about animosity towards women. There's a really cool bit about, you know, he will strike your heel. Well, you know, but he will, also he will strike your head while you strike your heel. So we're going to do some head striking as we change this narrative um, around forever. Now, psychologists have studied women. That's an exciting study right there. But psychologists have studied women. Are there any psychologists in the house? You can correct me um, if I say anything all wrong. But basically, they've studied everything, haven't they? And they've studied our brains. They've studied our behaviors. They study what we do and why we do them when we're awake or asleep. And there's been some evidence um, that kind of reinforces the narrative that is our culture. So I think we should probably all agree there's a spectrum of womanhood, right? So if we, if we all lined up and we compared who feels really, really feminine and, you know, who, who feels like, well, oh, really, I'd rather climb a tree. Does that make me a tomboy? You know, there's a whole spectrum. Some people really like pretty dainty things. Other people, you know, we're just one step from being a thug. You know, there's a spectrum of womanhood. And this is all God's gift and all God's beautiful grace. But into that, we've got differences and we've got interests that, you know, we need to work out how to steer through. Now, we have, and I'm sorry to say, women have a greater increase of this because we're special. We have a propensity to absorb negative comments. It's called positive negative asymmetry or negative bias, if you want the big grown-up words. In other words, we can be out having a really fab day with our mate, and everything could be really good, and they could say everything that's really perfect. And honestly, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's really like a 12 day. You know, everything is cooking on gas, perfect, perfect, perfect. And then they make one comment that we don't like, one comment that niggles, and we go, and suddenly our day has gone from, oh my gosh, it was almost like being with Jesus himself to, oh my gosh, I just tripped into hell and don't know what happened and she was horrible and, and I'm terrible and our friendship is over and I'm not loved and I'm not understood. Because one comment, because we have this ability to absorb negative comments deep and let positive comments just float off us. They just don't stick. Now, you might think, oh, that's not me. It's definitely me. You could ask my husband, don't, but you could ask Tim. He would tell you, for sure, she has positive negative asymmetry. Mm. We're trying to give her vitamins. It's not working. No, because, you know, he can tell me one negative thing, and that will last for a while. Thank you very much. But he tells me positive things all the time, like he has verbal diarrhea for positive things, in a good way, babe, for positive things. Everyone goes, oh, He's here. <laughs> um, he will say positive things. I'm going, yeah, whatever. You know, you look great. Huh. 
You know, everything, everything. It's just so easily drift off. Now, when we do that in our relationships with us as women, we are damaging our relationships because we believe and absorb the negative, minuscule stuff. And the positive stuff just goes away as if it doesn't stick at all. Now, there's some good news about relationships with women, which scientists have also proven. Best friend circles are really good. They can be really healthy. Oh, I saw some little looks amongst them leaning in. Don't lean too far. Don't breathe. Um, (laughs) There is something really beautiful about female friendships when it's in a best friend circle. And we seem to be able to cope with some of the negatives, like when we get to know someone really well, oh, it's just them. You know, they didn't mean it. They were hormonal. You know, and we just sort of dismiss things. And in a working environment, there can be all female working environments that are amazing amazing working environments but there's a challenge and it's when and this is what I really didn't want to ever admit but I've read enough stuff now oh um, there's a challenge when men get involved and this is the challenge thank you so much that was just in case I had a prophetic word and needed to rewrite the book as I went on Um, say thank you because you never know there might be a little appendage Um, so in male dominated working environments where you get just one woman coming through the ranks it's called tokenism and you get one person no it really is called tokenism I'm not being rude I know that's the throw at oh tokenism no it really is that's what it's called when you get one coming through the ranks if you then have another female trying to get through the ranks, science has shown this. It's ugly. I'm sorry. I'm just painting the picture of culture. Science has shown that those women will compete. So the woman trying to break through the ranks is not going to see all the men and think, well, I, I want their job. <laughs> you know, I want their position. She's going to think, well, the, I couldn't replace them. I'm only going to be able to therefore compete against the woman because they've only got one woman in here. So she's my threat. So she's my opposition. So in workplaces, in male-dominated places, you set up this narrative where women compete. And you may or may not have heard the statement, you know, women don't like women bosses. And, you know, women don't like working for women. It's, there's a dynamic, it's a reality that is in our narrative. I know it's uncomfortable to admit Um, Now, in male-dominated contexts, comparison can lead to kind of a deep-rooted competition, which is really tricky. I read some articles. There's a professor from Canada called Tracy Valancourt, and she's written loads and loads of stuff, amazing articles about women competing with women and how we need to champion one another. So I emailed her knowing that she would have to reply because she's got to champion me, right? So I wrote to her during my research. I said, I love your research about championing women. I'd just like to tell you about the book I'm writing. And it was great, because she replied. Like, she's like up there in professor land. She didn't quite follow through on sending me some stuff. That's not a criticism, but she's very, very busy. But she pointed me in some really helpful directions, which was really amazing, because she had to, because she's written about it. Um, But she wrote about um, tokenism and and one or few women um, breaking through the ranks of men gets um, difficult. Now, here's the really uncomfortable bit. Now, whether whether or not you like this, this is scientifically proven that a lot of the competition stems from our primal urges. You might not know you have primal urges, but you do apparently have primal urges. Um, And this is what it is. We look whether we like it or not, we look to males for our mates or our promotion. Because our culture has established men in positions of authority, 
it is the men who will be able to give us promotion. And please understand, I'm not anti-men. I just want you to understand the culture that we've adopted subconsciously. So there is maleness that holds the position of authority and responsibility and also the ability to impregnate and continue society. And you know, these primal urges are actually God-given because without them, we, the world would end because no one would make babies. So, you know, it's not all bad. It's a God-given thing that there is a primal desire to mate. You didn't know you were going down this road when you came here today, did you? But this is the road I'm taking you down. Trust me, it'll be worth it when we get there. So we have these primal urges, and this is why there's an instinct between women of competition. This is why you can see it amongst teenage girls. No offense to anybody nearer teenagerhood than me. Um, this is why you can have a group of girls with a few boys and the competition is subtly eroding. Even if you don't really fancy the boy, there's, a, there's something weird in the dynamic that sets you up. Anything familiar about what I'm saying? You won't admit it. It's like, I'm not saying my mum's at the back. Um, <laughs> she doesn't fancy any boys. It's all fine. She's waiting for everything till she's 30. <laughs> It's not a prophecy, hon. Okay, um, there's also a thing. There's also a thing called system justification. Have you heard of this? System justification, that's a psychological concept in which long-oppressed people groups struggle to make sense of an unfair world and they kind of internalize negative stereotypes as a result. So you say, well, because it's always going to be like this, it's always going to be like this, so this is what I'm going to feel like. And you kind of self-trap yourself in this place where it goes. And Brené Brown, have you heard of her? She's a fantastic communicator from the States, researcher, a professor, follow her. She's, she's hilarious, um, but also clever. Um, she says this, our brains dress rehearse conspiracies. Now, if you don't think your brain dress rehearses conspiracies, how many of you have worked out what you'll do if you have to stay home for a couple of weeks? If you think your brain doesn't dress rehearse things, how many of you have done what the prodigal son did when he was getting back towards his father going, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this, yes, I'm going to say this, oh, I won't say that, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this. Our brains dress rehearse conspiracy. That damages relationships because we've already set ourselves up to justify what we think is going to happen. And you'll know that sometimes you've been caught off guard when you're dress rehearsing an apology for someone and you're ready to fight back when they don't, you know, when they don't receive it in the way that you wanted because you expect them to do that. And then they say, oh, it's fine. You go, oh, 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 that's not what I was expecting you to do because we've dressed rehearsed conspiracies. So this is, this is a theory. So all of this is the background of culture okay, that we swim in. All of this is our normal. And into all of this, God is saying, I have got a better narrative. I have got a bigger narrative. I have got something that reveals my glory to you, my daughters, that sets you up to succeed, that sets you up to champion one another, that sets you up to be completely free of comparison forever. Now, some stories. I'm just going to really quickly remind you of some stories from the Bible that you will know. So one of them, if I say Rachel and Leah, most of you will immediately remember, okay, Old Testament story, two sisters, it's the Genesis account, there's two sisters, they marry the same man, mm, that's going to go easy, isn't it? Um, so they marry the same man, the father tricked, you know the story, it's in a middle Genesis. So in Genesis 30, um, verse 1, Rachel um, and Leah are introduced. Oh, let me just give you a reference, it's a very cool reference. So the description 
of Rachel and Leah is beautiful. So um, Rachel was described as beautiful, sparkly-eyed, and Leah was not. That's how, they, that's how they're described when they're first introduced, but I can't actually see where that is in my Bible because it's all moved. But if you look for it, it says Rachel was sparkly-eyed. Leah was not. So the whole narrative sets them up to compete and compare. Then when you get to um, their marriage, God has compassion on Leah. Why does she have, he have compassion on Leah? Because she wasn't, having, she wasn't um, as loved, so he opened her womb. This is a beautiful thing. Oh, I found it, 29, 16, 17. Okay, I found it. This, Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Immediately, comparison. <laughs> That's how it's a lovely face. And when you come to the end of that same chapter, you get to 31. This is what the Lord, the Lord, the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. He enabled her to have children. But Rachel could not conceive. Now, this is a beautiful thing. Now, I don't want you to translate that into applying it just about looks or babies. This is not, well, I either have a baby or I either am beautiful, and more than that, there's nothing there. The point of this little nugget of a diamond from the Lord is that everybody has something. Now, in their culture, in their context, they were limited to babies and beauty. You know, that was about the extent of it for women. Our culture is much broader. So when we begin to apply this understanding, we can go much broader with permission. It doesn't mean to say we can literally suddenly say, well, I'm going to be a millionaire then because I claim that. No, the point is the Lord gives everybody something unique and personal and intimate and wonderful. So here they had something, but there was jealousy between them. And the jealousy raged through their wombs and how many babies they could produce. And it's quite phenomenal. If you read all the names that they gave their children, you have this whole mass display of brokenness right there. I'm really, you know, my son should be really grateful for the name I gave him. Um, Because, you know, if I'd gone really biblical, it could have been interesting. But in Genesis 30, we get to see some of these names. And listen, verse 30, uh, verse 8 of 30, you hear this. So in this one, Rachel has had a baby and she's had this through her handmaid servant called Billa, which was Age appropriate and culturally appropriate. Don't go there. Don't get a servant. Have your babies. Um, but, you know, she, she had this. And she called the baby Naphtali. And this is what Naphtali means. I've struggled hard with my sister and I'm winning. <laughs> like, oh, no, there's no competition between the girls ever. But this is what her child is called. This is what the next generation is being birthed into. Then you get um, Leah has a child called Asher. And she calls him Asher, meaning now the other women will celebrate with me. Like, stop, women. Like, there's this craving for women's approval, but there's this battle against the closest women in her world, and it's just all messy. Before all of this began, Rachel implored her husband, saying, give me children or I'll die. Like, this is desperate. Now, I know none of you will ever have ever had a personal story like this, but I have to say, I've been a little bit, like Rachel. I mean, I didn't say I'm going to die if you don't give me kids, Tim. But I was really, really battling. If you go back to about 2001, so I've got three kids. So if you don't me, the, the end of the story is, you know, I have plenty of babies. Thank you very much. Stop now. Um, 
<laughs> so um, in 2001, at this stage, I only had one, and she was sort of starting school and in school, and, you know, I had a lot to be thankful for. I have this husband who affirms me every minute of the day. I have this beautiful daughter who was, at, well, maybe not every minute, um, let's keep it real, um, when he's awake. Um, and then I have this beautiful daughter who's at school. I have a purpose. Like, well, I was leading a church. We've got purpose and everything. But yet I was miserable. And I was miserable because I drifted into secondary infertility. So I was walking around what was the Harlequin, now into, um, God bless the business. Um, I was walking around um, the Harlequin and every single person in the Harlequin that day was pregnant. Every single, even the men, every single person was pregnant. And I was fueling inside me. I was getting so upset. It's not fair. Why can't I have another child? And my eldest, well, my only, was saying, when are you going to give me a baby? Of course, I remind her of that now. Why did you give me siblings? Um, you wanted them. Um, so, you know, but everything in me was beginning to twist and turn. And I was fueling jealousy by comparing myself to what other women had. Then, um, obviously, I was a really godly woman and so just took it to the Lord and was healed of my sin and jealousy and everything was fine. But before that happened, I decided to write to my sister, who was busy pregnanting, <laughs> carrying her third child. I just thought that was greedy. You know, I wanted one more and she's having three. So I wrote to her because I felt she needed to know that I was hurting and she needed to be more sympathetic, as if she got pregnant to spite me. So I write, honestly, my sister loves Jesus more than me, which is a God-given grace gift right there, I tell you, because she's got me for life. Um, but my sister um, didn't know that I was fueling jealousy against her. She didn't know that her pregnancy was causing me to go, oh, you and all the people in Watford. Um, but I decided to enlighten her in a letter, never do that never do that. Because what I did was I sent a little time bomb in an envelope that landed on her doorstep. Now, obviously, it took a couple of days to get there. Now, it would be instant, wouldn't it, if I email or text? Um, but, you know, in the snail mail days, um, it got there. And um, we never talked about it. I think I felt better for dumping on her, if I'm honest. And then I just thought, well, now you know we're all good and we'll move on. Um, and it devastated her devastated her. For a whole year, we didn't talk about it. And the reason we didn't talk about it was because she was so hurting. As if she was doing this against me. As if she was competing. But I had this narrative in my head that I projected onto her. And it was cruel. But as I say, she loves Jesus more than me. All is well in the world. There's two other women in the Bible. You know about them, Mary and Martha. They're the famous ones. You know, they're the famous ones where Martha is the homeowner. She's the one in the decision-making power of hospitality that invited Jesus and his mates in. Now, maybe she didn't know how many mates he had, or maybe she didn't know how hungry they were, or maybe she just didn't know where she put the ingredients that she suddenly found that she'd lost and got all stressed for. But nonetheless, Martha was the one who invited them in. Mary was the one who's in the position of discipleship. You know the story. There's an interesting thing that I relate to with Martha, not for my cooking skills, um, although we didn't, fairness, we don't know how the meal turned out in the end at all. It's always, you want those details, don't you? How did it go? Did you actually eat on time, you know? Who did the washing up? But anyway, um, what Martha did was she turned to Jesus 
she projected her frustration of her sister. I point as if you're, you can be Mary. Stop sitting around. Um, she projected her annoyance with her sister and her out of control stress onto Jesus, saying, Jesus, tell my sister to get in here and help me. And Jesus said, no, nothing that she's discovered is going to be taken away. Now, I reckon if Martha pushed back, Jesus would say, do you want to sit down? Because quite frankly, I've fed 5,000 and I can do a lot with the ingredients you've got right here. <laughs> I don't think he'd have been stressed or hungry. He could fix it. And I think he could have added to Martha. But in those moments, she was too busy projecting what she didn't have onto her sister and fueling comparisons and frustrations that she then tried to manipulate the Lord over. I know that's harsh. She tried to manipulate Jesus. See me and my need, Jesus. Now get her to fix it. And one of the things, if we're honest, how many of us have prayed to Jesus to change another person in order that I can get what I want? Maybe none of you because you're all far too godly. But there is a competition that she was falling into. Now, the beautiful thing, and you, all you Bible scholars will know this, if you pick up John's story when Lazarus, their brother, actually passed away and, you know, he went in the buried thing and, you know, all too late, got a bit smelly. Jesus came along late. Martha is the first one to leave her grief place, you know, where she's weeping and wailing and being really sad because she was sad because she'd lost her brother. She was the first one to say, Jesus is here. She's the first one to run. She found something in the end that actually in Jesus is our hope and our solution. To the point that she had to then go call her sister, Mary, oi Mary, Jesus wants you. Why are you being so slow? Which I love. I just think that's just a beautiful twist of Martha learning something. There is a comparison and a competition between them that is projected on Jesus. And he has a better story. Is that good news? I think it's good news. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he said in the beginning of Romans, don't just love each other. Don't just pretend to love each other. Really love each other. Years ago, in the season when I was in um, secondary infertility, we were, there were lots of babies in our church. Like I said, everyone was pregnant. Um, and, you know, the privilege of our position is we get to dedicate lots of babies. And there was, there was just a run on them. Do you know what I mean? It's just like... What's going on in the water? Nothing to do with the drinking water. Um, there were, but there were just lots of, lots and lots of babies. And we were constantly dedicating these beautiful cherubs. And all the time I'm thinking, well, where's mine? You know, you wait for a bus, when's mine? Um, and one time, one of our elders, a lovely lady, now anyone who knows the church history knows who I'm talking about. Um, but a lovely lady came up to me, Helen, and she said, Helen, which is appropriate, it's my name. She came up to me and said, Helen, um, I think you need to celebrate these babies more. I could have smacked her. And um, I didn't because she's, she, she's like a velvet boxing glove. She would have taken me out. Um, but I said, I am celebrating. Look at my face. Look at my, I am celebrating. I'm praying blessings on these children. I'm celebrating. I'm listening to them warbling on about their beautiful children. And um, I am celebrating. She goes, no, you're pretending. <laughs> okay. 
I, she doesn't say this publicly on the microphone, you understand. It was a private, safe conversation. Everyone's going, harsh. No, we've got a good relationship. When you've got a good relationship, you can, you can correct someone. And she was really challenging me, like with the words of Paul. No, really celebrate. And you know, what I want us to do, and we're going to take um, a moment in a minute to just press into the Lord. What we're going to do is we want to get to a place of celebrating each other. But first, we need to recognize who we are in Christ. First, we need to recognize who Christ is and the Father's love for us and the power of the Holy Spirit. First, we need to recognize the narrative that we've been swimming in and this invitation from the Lord for a new narrative, a fresh narrative. So as I said, in Romans 12, we get this beautiful encouragement to um, love each other really well. But before that, Romans has moved, before that, there's a verse, it says this, um, verse two, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Ladies, there is an invitation to have our minds renewed, to change the narrative by having the Holy Spirit move. And I'm going to read you one other verse. Maybe the band could come because that's always fun to say that. Because then they do what I ask them to do. It's probably the only time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, there's a beautiful psalm. We all know it. Psalm 139. You know, it's when we're knitted together you know, pearl stitch or whatever the knitting things are. And in the secret places we're known. I just want to read you a few verses of this really familiar passage. And I want you to give the Holy Spirit permission to seal this in a way that he's never done before in your hearts and in your minds. To personalize this. This is a psalm of David. But I want you to personalize it as if it was your psalm as if this was written by you, for you, of you. So I'll just read from verse 13. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body, all of them. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. That's for women right there, isn't it? Just that phrase, we're wonderfully complex. I find great encouragement from that. And if any of you are in a certain season of life um, where you're even more wonderfully complex, perimenopausal is the phrase I use in my house. I am not menopausal, but I am going peri-peri chicken. Um, we're wonderfully complex. That's not a problem to God. That's a thing to celebrate. The fact that your moods can go a whole 360 degrees within five seconds because you're wonderfully complex is a thing God celebrates because you can feel passionately. 
You can celebrate exuberantly. You can weep deeply. These are wonderful, complex matters. The fact that you can oscillate in, you know, leaping out of bed with joy and delight on a holiday and, you know, dragging your body out to work as if you're going to exams nude, you know, and all the worst nightmares of your life in one. It's wonderfully complex. God celebrates that because you know how to rest, but you endure and you're tenacious and you show up into the tough places too. You're wonderfully complex. Thank you, says David. Can we say thank you for making me wonderfully complex? Your workmanship, Lord, on us is marvellous. How well I know it. How well do we know it? We can know it weller. You watched me as I was, all the English teachers just went, oh, Helen, stop it. I'm allowed to make up words. I'm an author, don't you know? Just hyphenate. You can, honestly, we're meeting Jesus and I'm making a joke. Susie's going into deep intercession for me. Okay, I'll get there. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvellous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Somebody needs to hear that. Let's cast out fear right now. Every day of my life is recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day has passed. Now hear this. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God? They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. The thoughts the Lord has about you are more numerous than all the grains of sand. And all of those thoughts about you, towards you, are good, wonderful, good. They cannot be numbered and they are precious. Every thought he has about you is precious. Not so the enemy. He really doesn't like you. But God, he celebrates your uniquenesses. He celebrates everything about you. And your way out of the comparison trap is recognizing you are incomparable. And the Father loves you. He knows everything you've done, so don't start trying to, you know, yeah, but if it, He knows. He knows. Oh, but I don't know. He knows that too. But I can't fit into that. No, He knows that too. His thoughts towards you are so good. Nothing that you could number, they're that vast. Just where you are, bow your heads, close your eyes. 
I'm going to pray. Then Ben and the band, they're going to sing a song. Just had to check in case I was wrong. They're going to sing a song over us. And I want you to give the Holy Spirit permission to do something that you haven't before and let him seal this reality and renew your thinking. You'll have to walk it out. You'll have to keep, you know, every day walking this out. But let's anticipate transformation in this room today. There are some of you who have compared yourself to other people, to parents' expectations, to a spousal expectation, to sibling expectation, to workplace expectation. You have, you've been gripped by comparison. And it's time, my friend. It's time to change the narrative. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're here. Lord, I thank you that you said in your word, when your Holy Spirit comes upon us, we will be given power to be your witnesses. A witness who says what we see you do. So Lord, I pray for your power to come now. I pray for your power to break the chains of comparison that have gripped us the lies in our head that we have replayed and replayed and replayed. Our ability to accept and absorb negative. Lord, I pray that you would give us the power to break free from that in Jesus' name. And I pray that in this room right now, lies will be being shown for what they are. Lies. And I pray that a wave of your Holy Spirit's love and grace will flood every single one of my sisters here with your precious thoughts, with your thoughts for us, with your feelings towards us, with your delight in us, not so that we become me-centric, but so that we fall in love with you afresh in the safest of all relationships to be set free from any comparison that we can be incomparably who you've called us and created us to be that we can be the people you knit together in our mother's womb whether she decided she was going to have us or not you knit us together in our mother's womb and we are not a mistake and I pray that right now women will be being set free from lies that the enemy has told because he is opposed to us and I pray that in this room free will come. Truth will come. Your precious thoughts will settle in our spirits and find good soil in our hearts. Lord, may we not be stony ground to your thoughts. May we not be um, thorny ground to your thoughts. May we not be shallow ground to your thoughts, but may we be deep soil for your thoughts that in this room, women will break free because we absorb your truth and we reject the enemy's lies. Come Holy Spirit in love in power and set us free thanks for listening to this recording we hope it has encouraged you challenged you and more than anything that you've heard the voice of God and been aware of his presence with you wherever you are do share with us any answers to prayer or get in touch if there is any way we can help you further on your journey with God. Come and see us on Sunday or you can email us at admin at wellspring-church.org. May God be near you.
and his peace be yours for the remainder of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.